Welcome back to the Backyard Bounty Podcast. During this episode, we're going to be talking about spring planting. This is going to be probably our most popular and most requested topic because so many people want to plant things like tomatoes and peppers. And when they think of gardening, they think of those stereotypical spring and summer plants. So today we're going to be talking about how we approach the spring garden, how we start seeds, or if we do or don't start seeds, what we plant outside, and what our gardens are going to look like this spring. Welcome to the Backyard Bounty Podcast, where we encourage everyone to grow in the space they have. I'm so excited to talk about this topic this week. I spent so much time preparing, but unfortunately I realized that I will not be starting any seeds this spring. Oh really? Why not? We are going on vacation, and of course we're going right as spring starts. Oh yeah, that is really tricky because you have to make sure everything's planted at the right times. It's a bummer you can't start seeds, but would you consider buying any plants? Yeah, I I think I'm going to end up buying tomatoes and peppers from a nursery. Okay. Do you have specific types that you buy or that you like to grow? I'm not a huge fan of tomatoes, <laughs> but I grow them because they're so useful. Absolutely. Um, I had a lot of luck with the Cherokee tomatoes last year. Oh, okay. I haven't heard of those. There's so many different types of varieties, though. It's so hard to keep track of everything. It's almost kind of like you have to find the ones that you like and that the ones you know that you can find and just continue to grow those. Yeah, I feel like if you're just growing tomatoes to preserve, the variety doesn't really matter, except maybe the quantity that they're going to produce. Yeah, for sure. It's, I think as long as it's some kind of tomato that's going to have the nice flesh that you can actually use, because I know there's a lot of like juicy tomatoes out there that may not be as useful for canning purposes or preservation versus kind of more of the stereotypical paste tomato, like aroma, or I'm trying a new variety this year called a Punta Banda or Banda. Um, and it's smaller, so it's closer to like somewhere between a cherry and aroma, but it's supposed to grow and produce a ton and it's supposed to do way better here because I really struggled with the aromas last year. So we're going to try that. And it's a semi-determinate variety. So I'm not really sure what to expect with that. I think it'll be interesting to try because I've only ever had full determinates or indeterminates. And for those who don't know what that means, an indeterminate is one that's going to continue to grow and produce throughout the season. Often will even overwinter if you don't have significantly cold weather and frost. But a determinate tomato is just going to grow typically more bushy. And then it's just going to produce kind of all at once toward the end of the season. And you collect most everything all at once, which is typical of aroma tomato. So for people that want to can, oftentimes they'll choose aroma because they'll get all their tomatoes all at once. They can do a huge batch of canning over the course of a few weeks, and then they're done for that season. But for us, we kind of wanted to do a mix. So this tomato is actually a semi-determinate. So it's supposed to still grow and produce throughout the season, but not grow as tall or vigorous as a full indeterminate. And so we're using the string trellis method this year where we connect it to a string on a top of a pole and then we actually just like clip it up as it grows and keep it at one to two liters instead of having a plant that grows all over the place. We're going to kind of trim it and keep it really trimmed perfectly. And um, hopefully that'll make it easier to harvest, but also it'll be easier to manage because I know tomatoes are such a pain to continuously try to keep at the right height and size and not let them just like take over your yard. It's interesting. I just saw a post on someone who trellised theirs up over an arch. And I thought that was really cool because my peppers always, or sorry, <laughs> tomatoes always go all over the place. Yeah, we tried the arch last year and I still found it was really hard, especially in an indeterminate tomato where you're constantly having to keep track of what leaders you're going to keep and how to trim it back properly and taking all the little suckers between like the stem and the leaf off 
it's you only want two or three maybe depending on how you want it to look and how dense you want it but it's gonna constantly like every day you're gonna have new suckers and you're gonna have to be maintaining it and i just found that if i forgot or if i just put it off or wasn't maintaining it constantly that it was really hard to start tracking them once they were on the trellis versus the string method each leader which is the actual part that you want to grow and to produce your fruit has its own string and so if you start to see suckers growing out or new leaders coming off of that leader you know to cut those off and that allows you to kind of control which ones you want so for my yellow pear tomato i'm not going to be as perfect about it that one i am just going to let grow on a trellis i'm going to do the best i can but i'm not going to be super obsessive about making sure i only have two or three liters and then it's all like perfectly organized and stuff that one i think is going to produce just fine regardless of what i do and so I will leave that one alone probably on a trellis and just do the bare minimum maintenance versus the tomatoes that I want to use consistently for canning. I want to make sure because I'm growing like 24 of them. So I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything that's going to make my life harder, which is why I chose to try to do this. So many tomato plants. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited. I'm sure it's probably far too many and I'm going to be super overwhelmed. But I also think I want to get a really good idea this year on how many tomatoes I need to actually make all the things I want to make. So pizza sauces, marinara sauces, pasta sauce, lots of salsa, all sorts of stuff. And we love fermented salsa and you need a lot of the ingredients to do that and you need to make it regularly. It's not something that can be on like shelf stable storage, like a regular can of pressure canned or I guess it'd be water canned tomato salsa. So having tomatoes regularly throughout the season with the semi-determinant, I felt like was going to be a better mix for us. And then I'm not going to have a 10 foot long plant to deal with because there's going to be 24 of them. So if they just keep growing forever, I think it's going to be really overwhelming for me to deal with versus these that'll grow a little slower. And I may just end up replanting again in the monsoon season plant because that's another benefit to being in Arizona is that we have such a long planting season that as long as you take care of starting seeds early enough, I found that you can plant during monsoon season, during that kind of July-ish time, and you almost have like a whole nother season before things start to get cold again. Yeah, we do have such a long growing season that I could start my seeds when I got back at the end of March. Yeah, I mean, the healthier and bigger the plants are, especially for that monsoon season planting, the better off you're going to be. Because it can be really hard to transition a plant to dealing with that kind of heat that we're talking about. But also, if there's a lot of rain and a lot of nice weather, then you're definitely going to be able to do it. So if you start them early and you have nice, big, healthy tomato plants, I think they'll do fine outside. One of the good things about starting your own plants from seed is there are a lot of varieties that I noticed I can't find in the stores. Oh, for sure. I use a lot of seeds from that native seed search place. And they're all kind of supposed to be Southwestern native varieties, I guess would be the word. And I have had really good luck with those. So my long beans and the cowpeas that I previously planted just go nuts. And I really can't do green beans because they just don't produce. Um, I could probably get away with it if I had some shady area to put them in but I don't really have a place to put them. But the long beans being a different variety are so good in the summer. I swear it gets hotter and they get happier. Like it'll be over 100, over 110 on days. And as long as their roots are watered, they just thrive and they get greener and they get happier and they produce more and it's crazy. They're not quite as good as green beans, in my opinion, because green beans are one of my favorite things on earth to eat. But if you add like a little salt and pepper or just like a little bit of seasoning or something to them, it 
makes them delicious still and that's what we're planning on doing this year i'm gonna be doing a ton of them on pretty much every available trellis and in any available bed but i figured we could take a second to kind of lay out for the audience what our backyard gardens look like so people can kind of get an idea of where we put things and why we put them there and things like that so i don't know if you want to explain where your perennials are and things like that so they can kind of get an idea of what your garden looks like. Most of my perennials are actually planted in the ground. Um, things like strawberries that I keep all year are up in troughs. I have two by three foot troughs with a arch that goes in between them and then a couple of the normal size like four foot by two foot troughs. One of the troughs has asparagus all year. That's one of the perennials that we really like to grow. Um, artichokes are in the ground but last year I was having a problem with the roots rotting because we also irrigate about every two weeks during the summer and it was just way too much water for them. So this year I have them planted up on a berm Oh, smart. Where they can dry out a little bit more. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, that's about it. And then I have trees kind of surrounding the garden. Okay. What kind of trees do you have again? So I have a variety of citrus trees. So we have um, a clementine, a kumquat, bear's lime, which I found grows better here for us than a Mexican lime tree, um, a eureka lemon, a blood orange and a Australian finger lime. There ah. we go. That's all our citrus. Yes. Our, I'm hoping that our Australian finger lime is happier this year because I know you said it took years, a couple years to establish and get happy. And we're now a couple years in, so I'm excited to see what ours does this spring since we, we put a heat cable on it and we protected it all winter. And now it'll start hopefully warming up and start growing really well. Yeah, it's not, it's kind of a useless citrus tree. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that you can do with it, but it's really cool. Yes, I think they're going to be so good in like salads and things just to like open them up. And I love that citrus, kind of that tart flavor. So anything I can get, lemon or lime especially, in anything is my favorite. For a while, I had a sorrel plant that tasted like that. And it was really interesting. It was most of the time, if you describe a, a lettuce, especially, or a leaf, you would say it's bitter, but this was actually sour, like citrus, because it has such a high vitamin C content. And I think I need to get another one because it died last year because I did not water that bed enough and it just didn't make it through the summer. But I really liked that in salads and I feel like that's going to be my biggest use for the finger lime is the zest and then just using in salads or Buddha bowls or just different things like that to add, add flavor to the sauces or dressings or whatever I'm using. So we'll see how that goes since I haven't actually tried that. It's just theoretical at this point, but that's my plan. Oh man, you said Buddha bowl and I forgot that I have that Buddha's <laughs> ham lemon and that has to be like the most useless <laughs> useless plant I have in my garden. It's so fun looking, but yeah, it's you kind of just have to zest the whole thing, right? That's all you can do with it. Yeah, I really didn't do anything with <laughs> it. I I just looked at it and took a picture of it. Yeah, and that's okay too. I mean, things can bring us joy without them being 100% perfectly useful. And year to year, we can kind of figure out what's going to be the most useful because we've pared down a lot of stuff our first two seasons, because this will be our third spring planting, our first two seasons were just purely experimental. It was not a lot of any one thing, but lots of different varieties to try to figure out what we wanted. We've tried so many different types of winter squash and summer squash and all sorts of stuff. And our favorite that we're definitely going to continue to plant is the Rampaconte. And that one is really cool because it's tends to be a little bit hardier against pests. So we had way less issues with the boar beetle things that are just such a nightmare. Mm -hmm. We have the worst of those. Like every year we've tried to do pumpkins or anything else besides the Rampicante. They tend to just get destroyed no matter what I try to do. They just, even if you catch them like day one, 
it almost seems like it's too late. Like the plant is already so behind because it's been damaged so thoroughly. So the Rampicante is definitely awesome for that. But I'm also trying two new varieties this year just to be super sure that the Rampicante is the only squash that we want to try. And those are the Rancho Marquise and the Mayo Blusher. They're both from the Native Seed Search. And I'm super excited because there's tons of reviews online about people loving to grow them in Tucson. And both of them, as well as the Rampicante, are squash that you can actually use as summer squash. So more like a zucchini or a yellow squash. Or you can let them harden into more of a winter squash. So like a pumpkin or a butternut squash. And the Rampicante so far seem to be doing really well at storing. We did have a few pumpkins and we also had a few butternuts from last year that we tried to store. And they stored for maybe a month or two in our house because we don't have like anywhere perfect conditions to store things. But they rotted out so fast and we could only use like one of them. But the Rampicante are still doing really well from when I harvested them. I want to say December I harvested them or maybe maybe November. And so I'm like, we're going on maybe six, eight weeks now. Some of them have been here. So I'm probably going to make some equivalent to like a butternut squash soup or something with one of them just so I can get something prepared and frozen. Those are doing really well. And I think it's going to be interesting to see these new varieties because they're more like a pumpkin shape and less of like the Rampicante is just this gigantic long squash. It's like if you just continue to let a yellow squash get gigantic um, several feet long sometimes and so these other varieties are more like a pumpkin and it's hard for me to visualize what a summer squash equivalent pumpkin is going to be like in that shape because I'm so used to kind of that zucchini shape so we'll see how that goes but those are going to be in my main garden bed I'm going to do a tunnel this year for those because I just think even if it's not the most efficient necessarily way to grow them all the time I think it's just going to be really aesthetically pleasing and it's going to be fun to be able to go under the tunnel and see them grow that way and we have all that space that bed is so long I think it's like 30 feet long and so we're going to do cattle panel tunnels like four cattle panels across and then the rest of that bed is just going to be corn because we've done really well in that bed with corn in the past and we want to be able to kind of pack it in there with it still being able to have enough room to wind pollinate. I think it's so awesome that you can grow corn. <laughs> That's like the one thing that I just suck at doing. I can get it to grow, but then some grub is always inside eating it and I never get any corn off it. Yeah, the trick that I have found... And this goes for the squash as well, and honestly, the tomatoes and everything. Most of the pests that we have huge problems with are some form of worm caterpillar thing. And I have to spray mm -hmm. that BT spray. It's like that bacteria stuff that you can spray that once a caterpillar type creature eats it, it stops them from having any desire to eat anymore. Um, and then they eventually just mm -hmm. die. I spray that, I think the recommended amount is every five to seven days because it's not harmful to your plants. You just like rinse it off if you want to before you eat them. But I, I have to spray that every four days through the entire season. So basically, as soon as I see the first one, if I do see one like in winter, I'll just start spraying. And if I don't see one, then I'll start in the spring. But I pretty much just spray every single one of my plants because um, the caterpillars and stuff can be such a problem with the tomatoes and peppers and then you have whatever those little things are that get into your corn all of those can be stopped or slowed down significantly by the bt spray so that's the one thing that because we live in such a hot climate I feel like our plants are never quite as perfectly healthy as they could be in other places where they're not having to cope with 110 degree days. So they tend to be just slightly more susceptible in my experience to those types of plant of those types of pests. Um, I could be wrong, but that just seems like the case. But I definitely every four days oh. religiously, I spray that BT spray 
all season. And that's the only way I can get anything to not get eaten alive by caterpillar-like pests. That's good to know because I, I do think that our, our plants get really heat stressed, especially right in the middle of summer. Yeah, definitely. It's We try to do, um, I rotate through basically every four to five days I'm doing the BT and then every four to five days kind of opposite of that. So it would be like every two days I'm spraying something, but the other spray that I do is a foliar spray. So that's going to give the leaves and stuff like direct fertilization without having to go into the soil and having the roots break it down. So I use like a seaweed and fish spray and it smells absolutely horrible. I hate it. So I'll usually do it like in the evening, knowing that they aren't going to be, we won't be out there all night. And then usually the smell is dissipated. But also when you spray things on your plants, especially in the heat, it can magnify like a water droplet being on a leaf can actually cause the sun to burn it just like a magnifying glass. So you don't want to spray anything Mm -hmm. unless it's early morning or after the sun is kind of down for the the evening or your plants are in the shade where they're not going to get impacted by that. But that's definitely something that I have found makes a big difference. Since we have tilapia, I take the water when I do water changes from them and I put that into a giant trash can and we use that to fill our watering can. So a lot of times if I'm doing supplemental water, I will actually water with the fish waste water, which is really good for them and kind of gives that little bit of fertilization without being too strong. And then I will do basically every four days, four five days, I'll do the fertilizer foliar spray. And then every four or five days, I'll do the BT spray. And it's a pain because it's obviously you're doing a lot all the time. And then on the days I'm not spraying are the days that I'm usually maintaining the plant. So cutting back my tomatoes or do it, making sure that my peppers are the right shape or pulling off the little early flowers because the peppers always want to flower and I want them to get bigger before I do that and stuff. So all of those kind of maintenance things then get spread out throughout the other days and I'm not spraying. But I do that with all the plants. All the perennials as well for now, I probably won't have to spray them as much as they get more established, especially the trees. They'll get too big for me to really realistically do, but right now we're only on spring two and even spring one on a couple of the trees that we just planted recently. So I've been spraying them and just anything I can do to support them in their growth as they're kind of establishing is great. Now you have a lot of trellises in your gardens. We do, yeah. So we have... Let's see. So we're going to have those four trellises kind of next to each other to make the tunnel. And then pretty much between almost every bed. So we have beds set up in pairs. And then between those beds, then we each have a trellis that we use cattle panels for. Cattle panels are awesome for that because you don't really have to do much. You just kind of stick them in the ground as long as you have a truck bed and You already have to bend them in half to make them a trellis, so then you can get them into a truck bed way easier. So we have three there, and then I have another two more trellises in the big H bed. Because we use those cool Vago garden beds, and they you basically assemble them into whatever shape you want. So you buy the different packages of them, and then you can kind of custom make them. So we bought two giant jumbo U-shaped ones, and instead of making them U's, we took out the ends and just built it into one giant H-bed, because we felt like that was going to be more usable space, I guess. And then we ended up being able to make a couple other beds out of the extra pieces, which was really cool. But then in the H across the long pieces, then we have trellises there as well. And then we have cute little stone benches underneath those for sitting on, which sometimes get covered in bird poop because the birds like to hang out on the trellises, but usually they hang out on the other ones. So I try not to put things that they want to hang out on, like planting-wise, over the benches so I can actually use them. I also had that problem. I I decided to put the kids, like, a bench for them to sit underneath their um, pea tunnel that they had made and just bird poop everywhere. I definitely need to add more trellises. Trellises make a big difference. That vertical gardening space helps a lot. Yeah, I I need to keep everything up 
out of the irrigation water, so trellises would be super helpful since I'm looking at my list and most of my summer vegetables are vining or vines, yep. like cucumbers, melons, the Chinese red noodle beans, loofahs, goya. I have zucchini on there because everyone likes to grow zucchini. It's like the one thing you can grow and like feel like you actually did something. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We do. Um, we always plan to do like a yellow squash or a zucchini. We actually prefer the yellow squash because I always lose the zucchinis in a green plant with a green vegetable. It just <laughs> I miss them and then they get giant and then I just have to give them to the chickens because I just feel like I, they're not as good. So we just go with yellow squash because I can see them. They're easier. But I always know about May, maybe June, if I'm lucky, I'll get squashes through then. And then they just get destroyed by the vine borers. So I always just take the whole plant, cut the whole plant down and throw it to the chickens because they like to eat all of the greens. But also they love to search through and find those little pests. So that's like an extra little treat for them and kind of gives them some entertainment. And that way I'm not allowing another vine borer to grow. Because if I just put it in the compost, if I'm not composting hot enough, soon enough, then they won't die. They'll just fly out and they'll like go from larva to flying things. And they're great pollinators, but then they bore into the plant when they hatch and ruin everything. So we always plan to do that. It's we like the early squash. We get as much squash as we can and we use it all. And then we just freeze whatever we can and we just cut the plants down because I know it's not going to make it through the whole season. No, I think I replanted zucchini three times last year and I lost every plant. It does give you a lot before you lose it, yeah. but it's just kind of annoying to have to continue to replant it. Yeah. And that's another thing is with stuff like that that grows pretty quick, you can succession plant it. So if you plant them at whatever date you start planting outside before you worry about frost, then you can plant like every two weeks and just kind of have multiple plants going at different rates of growth. And then you can just start pulling plants as they die. Or you can start them inside. I know a lot of people say you shouldn't start things like that, especially a bigger seed type thing that grows so fast inside. But honestly, to get started right around that time when it may or may not frost and you're supposed to be able to put stuff out, but you don't really know. Um, I've been doing that. So about a month before my planting. So around now is when I'm going to start them indoors and give them three or four weeks so they'll sprout and be little plants before I put them outside and see how that goes this year. And I'm going to do both and kind of do an experiment and see how that does, especially for things like my cucumbers and my, I'll probably start my watermelon and other melons and things indoors and maybe even some of the squash, probably definitely the yellow squash and just see the difference. Because if I can get stuff out that's more mature, then I'll have vegetables sooner and then I'll get more out of it before it inevitably succumbs to all the pests that we have do you also trellis those big big things like melons like watermelon and yeah so do you, do you trellis that and just support it we actually found um the watermelon don't need support because we use a smaller watermelon so a full size of i think it's like a sugar watermelon or something um but mm -hmm. the full size ones are much smaller they're this they're smaller than a bowling ball typically is like the largest okay. ones we get so they're not huge but we find that the vine itself does a really good job of supporting itself so those we will always trellis because they grow like crazy we get so many watermelons out of them which is awesome because we eat them and then we feed them to the chickens and it's just a nice like treat in the summer for them to get some more moisture but those we always trellis because they ripen fully on the vine versus like our cantaloupes we use the hale's best melon i think it's it's a cantaloupe but they just don't call it a cantaloupe officially in the the type variety um that one we tried to trellis last year and it just fights you the whole time it doesn't want to be trellised and also when a ripe cantaloupe is ready to go it falls off the vine so then you just end up with ones that mm -hmm. have fallen or bruised or broken 
because they you manage to trellis it a little bit and then it just falls on the ground. So we're using those as ground cover this year. So like one of our beds, we know it's like our hottest bed and we know the cantaloupe will do well there and there's no trellises. But then my husband is going to actually take little pieces of wood, like cut two by fours into two by twos or by one by ones. I'm not 100% sure yet. But we're going to stick a bunch of those into that one long bed. We tried corn there and I think it was just too hot and it didn't get a good enough ground cover, but we didn't have enough open area between the corn to actually successfully grow melons. So this year we're going to do the melons as ground cover and then we're going to stick all those little sticks in the ground and we're going to do more of our Chinese long beans there. And so we're going to have... You do the... The same one, yeah. You do the red noodle beans or the green ones? Uh, yeah, they're red, purple, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. We love those. They grow so well. I do too. Those are my favorite. I'm trying to think of all the other things I'm growing so I can make sure I mention everything. But in our H bed... We have it so that one long side of the H is facing west and the other side is facing east. And that way I've found that if with the trellises in the middle, if I can get something that really likes the sun, that especially on that south trellis, that I can use that for cucumbers or things like that, that can take a lot of heat, but that it'll help protect some of that east side. So I'm actually starting the east side with potatoes. Because we're going to plant the potatoes probably this week since it's kind of getting towards middle end of February. And then I'll be able to plant the other side with all of my peppers. So I'm going to do all my chili peppers, bell peppers, everything on that side. As well as intersperse a bunch of black oil sunflowers. Because we're going to start harvesting the black oil sunflowers seeds for the animals to give them extra like fat and protein and things to kind of supplement them raising being raised on the pasture and also to help them lay in the winter. I tried to grow a whole bunch of sunflowers last year and we have wild lovebirds here that just ate all of it. (laughs) I, I didn't get a single sunflower seed. They were just gone. Oh, wow. But I've read you can put netting or bags over top of the heads to keep that from happening. That's what we did. So last year we grew the mammoths because I love to eat sunflower seeds. So I wanted to try that. And I got a ton. I probably only harvested maybe five big heads. And I got like a gallon of sunflower seeds, which is more than enough for me for a year. So I'll probably plant a few of those this year just so I can continuously have sunflower seeds when I want them. But we did bag them. So we have put mesh bags. And some of them I think we bagged too early because we didn't let them fully pollinate. So that's something I need to be more careful Mm. about this year is making sure that there's actually a seed in every sunflower seed. Because a lot of the ones I probably had maybe 20 or 30% were didn't actually have like the little kernel inside of the seed casing. But it's kind of a a balance. It's why I have to go out and check the garden for numerous reasons every day. But that's a big one when they're close is you start to see all the little tiny flowers because I don't know if you knew this, but some flowers have like the weird thing where they're like one big flower, but also each one of those seeds is an individual flower. Yeah, little tiny ones. Mm -hmm. I think there's a name for it, but I didn't realize that until I actually started growing them. And I was like, oh, this is very different than I thought. But... Like every seed is actually its own flower. Yes, I think that's so interesting. But we didn't let them pollinate well enough. So this year, I'm going to basically let them pollinate. And when I start to see the flowers fall off or dry out, then I'll bag them. And then that should allow me to keep them. And then I just let them dry on the stalk. So like the plant, once it's done, it just starts drying itself out. And it kind of does all that work for you. And so I'm gonna see how that goes this year and that way we have them all bagged but hopefully i'll have a higher germination rate especially if i'm going to be using them for the animals i want them to be complete and to know that there's the little kernel and all the nutrition and stuff they can get from them i think it's almost time for me to start adding more garden beds yeah (laughs) i feel like i'm running out of room yeah especially because you have a lot of the you do a lot of some specific things so if you have a whole bed that's just nothing but asparagus and you only have like four beds 
then that limits you a lot. That is one of the problems with growing so many perennial plants. Like I have a whole bed where at least half of it is just taken up with garlic. <laughs> then I have the other big long bed. Half of it is taking up with um, saffron, the crocus bulbs. Yeah. So there's already an eight foot by three foot bed that I can't plant anything else in it. Yeah. That's the benefit, I guess, to having so many garden beds for us is we have two beds that have virtually nothing else but blackberries in them. So we have six blackberries in total in those two beds. And then we have another bed that has just boysenberries and moringa trees. And we'll see this year, we might be able to squeeze some stuff in there. But for the most part, it's just the berry bushes. And then we have another bed that's just strawberries and another bed that we do just onion and also I have a mint plant in there because I'm always messing with the onions and harvesting so it's easier for me to keep the mint in check when I'm always messing with that bed and I hopefully will be able to plant some garlic there as well but I have not done garlic in the past I haven't had good luck with it because I didn't keep the beds wet enough so we'll see how that goes in the fall my favorite is to do music garlic and it's a hard neck variety. We like to eat the scapes that come out of the middle of the garlic. Yeah, I've heard those are good. Only the hard neck varieties will make that that little curly scape that comes out of the middle. They kind of just taste like a super garlicky green bean. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I've heard people will take the scapes and they'll eat them or like put them in things or I've seen a lot of people dry them and then they make like kind of a garlic powder out of them. Oh, I've never dried it before. I've seen a lot of people do that with the tops of onions as well. Like if you just have a ton of basically green onions that as you need to harvest mm -hmm. them, that you can take a bunch and dry them and essentially make like an onion powder out of them. So that's something I'm going to keep in mind as well. The newest thing that we did this winter was the Egyptian walking onion. And that plant is amazing. So I have some of those in theory some of my onions are supposed to be those um but they haven't done anything and i still think I, it's because i was recovering from not watering enough so i'm hoping when i redo that bed that they'll do way better but we'll see i haven't had them actually like quote unquote walk are yet. they just like green onions now they are green onions and I can see that they're multiplying okay. under the ground. But then I think in the spring is when they'll grow this like middle stalk with bulbs on right. the top of it. And then when it's heavy enough, it'll actually fall over. Yeah. And walk. Yeah. That's, and re reseed itself. That's what I'm hoping as well. I know a lot of people say that the, the onion, underground onion for the Egyptian walking onion can be like too intense to actually eat. It's like too oniony, but the top bulb is mm -hmm. what people seem to like to harvest. But there's also, I'm gonna. I'm super excited. Yeah, I'm gonna try some. Oh, I can never remember what they're called. Um, shallots. I'm gonna try some purple shallots mm -hmm. in this fall and see how I can grow those. Cause I know I have a hard time with regular onions. It's just we don't have a long enough season, but I think the shallots are small enough that they'll hopefully be okay. I've never cooked with shallots, so I don't, I have never really thought about planting them. You'll have to tell me how they do. Yeah, I love shallots. I find they're really convenient because sometimes I just don't want to chop up a whole onion or I'm making like an individual meal or just one or two things and I'll use shallots instead of onions. I don't have like, I guess, a super sensitive palate, so I probably, I'm sure there is a difference, but I don't really notice a huge difference like it still gives me that oniony flavor the same way that like a green onion does uh it's just probably not as potent i suspect as a regular onion but i like shallots i buy them at the store frequently um so i figured if i could grow those i'd be better because then i don't have to buy as many onions and shallots at the store but i know i'm not ever going to have the space to be able to be fully self-sufficient in things like onions and garlic and stuff so i'm trying to focus on what i can grow and then i'll just buy what i need of stuff like that yeah but it's still fun to try everything absolutely try to grow your own yeah you said you have a whole berry bed <clears throat> we have three berry beds yeah we tried blueberries we could not get them to work they just 
Blueberries are very finicky. I can get blueberries to grow for one year. And then for some reason, I'll think I'm doing great. And then they just die. Huh. Yeah, we had, I think we had a disease. But again, I was not watering the beds enough. So it's just really hard to know. Uh, But the blackberries survived despite my not watering the beds enough. And in fact, grew more blackberries because we redid a bunch of the beds last year to fix the soil because it was too sandy and amended a ton of them. And so we had a lot of little like pieces of blackberry root. And I don't know if you know this, but it will just grow more blackberries from every single piece of root that you cut off. And so we just keep getting more blackberries that come up. And so we've we bought two. And we've now propagated four on accident. And then we'll start propagating more to either fill other beds if we want to, or just to make sure if anything happens in the next like year or two to any of these newer ones that we have blackberries. Or we might just start giving them to people or selling them because we know that they work in our area. So if there's people that are interested in them versus going to the nurseries, a lot of those are not grown at the nursery they're just shipped there from wherever and so it's like you can't necessarily always guarantee that the plants you get at a nursery are going to be as happy and healthy some are grown there but you have to go to like a really big nursery for them to actually propagate their own plants usually i actually have three different kinds of blackberry bushes right now that i'm trying to grow and i bought all three of them at a nursery and I'm pretty sure they're not going to make it to summer. Oh, no. They are just not thriving. But I do have one that I took from my dad's house because they they grow from the nodes mm-hmm. in the roots under the ground, yeah. like you were saying. And then you can also just like anywhere a, branches, a branch touches, they root. Mm-hmm. And I took one from my dad's house and that thing is going crazy. Yeah, I think there's something about that. So I wish I knew what variety it was. I'll have to see if we have it written down somewhere what our variety is, because I do not remember anymore. We bought all that stuff all at once. And so it was like, hopefully kept all of it. I think I have a bag of just like all the tags, just for reference later. But I definitely, if you can get plants from people that already have successful ones, like this year we're propagating fig trees and mulberry trees and the blackberries and grapes because we have a neighbor down the street that wants to try some of them and then I figured there'd be a chance we you and I would exchange some plants at some point as we usually always do if you can propagate stuff from your own backyard and give it to people or even sell them to people that's awesome because that's just another way to kind of give from what you're already receiving and what's successful in your area Oh, yeah, and it's great if you share stuff like that and something happens to your plant, you know that yes, it's that always too. somewhere. Yes, we do that with our neighbor all the time because there's things that if he's busy or something, like he might not be taking care of his stuff as thoroughly as we might. And so he has higher death rates on certain things and we do really well on those. And then there's oftentimes it's vice versa where he has really good luck and doesn't do anything with his and we try really hard and things die so it is nice to have people that have the same varieties as you that you can kind of share with and make sure everything's good to go i think our absolute favorite thing to grow all year long is strawberries i'm so excited to try to actually get our strawberries going this year because they're looking so much better now that i fixed that garden bed and so i think we're actually gonna have strawberries this year which is exciting they just multiply so fast on their own. And we, we have really good luck with strawberries everywhere. We grow them inside the house and and outside and oh, nice. they just keep themselves alive. Yeah. Do you have to trim them back a lot or do you just like let them fill up the bed? Or what do you do with them, I guess? I let them fill up the bed, but I've learned that they will actually produce more if you thin them out. Sure. So I think it's around October or November when I dig up the whole bed and they put out these runners and they'll reroot themselves yeah. and kind of spread out. And I'll take all of those and separate them all out and then put them maybe eight inches apart from each other in the bed. Okay. And then I'll distribute out all the rest of them to friends and my parents and sure. 
everyone gets strawberries. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. So do you start or plant any, I guess, non, like a, what am I trying to say? A pollinator plant or like flowers or anything like that that are not specifically for food purposes? So I didn't used to because it wasn't really something that I ever thought about. But now that <clears throat> I'm starting to make the garden more, like I'm not so stressed out anymore. Like the first couple years, I was kind of stressed about making sure that I got everything in the ground on time and I was planting all the varieties that I wanted. But now that my garden is somewhere where I sit and kind of relax, I want it to look a little more aesthetically pleasing. Sure. And I have started planting more more pollinators and flowers and even though you think that they're not useful like they they, they are right. you still need all that stuff yeah um our biggest one is we have this giant popcorn plant oh and yeah honestly that would be enough for the whole garden everything loves the popcorn plant okay that's awesome yeah i started a bunch of seeds this year now that we've transitioned, instead of starting our seeds in soil, we do exclusively rock wool. I am able, I have so much better luck with germinating things. So I've planted, a, I've started a bunch of flowers and things like that. And I'm super excited. I have like, let's see, let's look at my list. So I have asters and bachelor buttons, more borage, because I love, oh, I love asters. I love the borage. Um, butterfly pea mm -hmm. is one I'm super excited about because you can use the flowers to like color things, but also you can actually eat the little peas and it's supposed to grow really well over a hundred degrees and just like vine and go crazy. And I've seen lots of people do it. So I'm interested to see. That is actually one that we've grown and it does love heat. Yeah. So I'm excited about that one because I think any of the trellises that are empty or any areas, like I might even try to plant it in an area the chickens can't get to, but let it grow like up the chicken run cage area or by like where the tortoise is up on his wall. And then I have calendula, which hopefully will just survive on its own this year now that the beds will be happier. I have cosmos and lavage marigolds and i haven't been able to get any of my nasturtiums to sprout like germinate at all they're one that i have such a hard time with no matter what time of year i do it they just don't do well but i figured i'd give it one last shot before i stop worrying about them and then the zinnias which i have everywhere they started coming up anywhere that there's water now i have little zinnias coming up they're everywhere in our pasture and they've just like spread so much on their own and then I got a free seed packet of pansies, so I'm trying those. But a lot of these I've never grown before, so we'll see how that goes, and they're just going to kind of go. I have one bed, the bed that we have above our compost, we have kind of built in like this metal structure with three compost areas, and then there's a garden bed on top of it. That in the summer, it gets so hot that we can't grow a lot, and it's not super deep. So that becomes our pollinator bed. So I put all sorts of pretty stuff in there that wants to grow all season. And then I'll intersperse other stuff in other beds. But I think I just want to let one half of that bed just be like a ton of borage. I love the borage and I love harvesting the flowers from that because it, it is medicinal, which is great. But the flowers are really delicious to eat like in salads or you can use them to flavor water. And they make the water, because they're blue, so they'll give like a little bit of a pale blueness sometimes to the water, but they also have kind of a cucumber vibe to them. So you can flavor water with them, which is kind of fun, or like lemonade or other things. And so I'll harvest those and use those. And bees love them. Yes, the bees are obsessed with the borage. And it just kind of, once you have a borage somewhere, it seems like, for me at least, it propagates itself so well. And it just never, like the that plant may die, but seeds will start new plants so easily. Ours come back every year. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. And it's usually the first thing to flower. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have one right now that's been going all through winter. You were saying you have a, you've had problems growing the nasturtiums? I have a hard time with them regardless of like the time. And I've tried to plant them, like start them indoors. I've tried to start them outside. 
they're just a pain. The seats that are hard like that, um, like Morning Glory and Nasturtiums, I usually soak the seeds for 24 hours mm -hmm. and then plant them outside. And they like it to be a little bit warmer. And then it usually still will take two or three weeks before I can even get them to start sprouting. Yeah. If they start sprouting in the next like month, that would be fantastic. If they don't, I'll just cut those squares out and cut my losses on them. Because it was the last of the seed packet. I bought one packet of them and I've tried a couple times and they're also not that important to me. Like I'd rather just grow what mm -hmm. does well and I don't have to put effort into, honestly. So if they don't grow, that's fine. Another thing that I think is good pollinators are herbs. Mm, yes. Like if you let herbs start to flower, th there will be certain times of the year where I just let the mint flower or the oregano or the um, thyme and, and all the pollinators usually like those. Yeah, I always let my basil and my mint flower because people always say it ruins the flavor, but I haven't really noticed that. But we have mm -hmm. rosemary in the winter is what keeps our bees alive, I think. They, we just... That whole plant, we have a huge rosemary bush in the front, and it just, every year, it flowers all winter, and it makes the bees so happy because they just basically live there. Let's see, did I cover all my plants? The long beans I talked about, those are going on trellises as well as in that cantaloupe bed. And then we trellis the watermelon, and we're trellising cucumbers and pear tomatoes in the H-bed. Because I think those will do well, like in more intense heat. And then we also two of my beds are perennial, like medicinal beds or herb beds. So those are just kind of the same every year for the most part. I might add like a parsley or a cilantro or things as they die back because they aren't gonna live forever. I'll add those kind of back in seasonally as necessary. And then those I usually will trellis the long beans on as well because they seem to like that. And then, oh, this year we're doing eggplants. We meant to last year, but we ended up doing okra instead. This year we're going to do eggplants and see if we like those and how many we actually need to feed us eggplant without getting sick of it because you can't really save eggplant very well. Okra is kind of like a zucchini. It just goes nuts and you have so much you don't know what to do with it. Yeah, and we did not like it. We tried it so many different ways. We tried it smaller and bigger and we tried pickling it and we tried frying it and all sorts of stuff. And we just were like not worth the space in our bed to mm -hmm. make it or to grow it because we just didn't like it enough. But we also have a whole bed of sweet potatoes and we have yet to actually pull any significantly sized sweet potatoes potatoes out of it but this year we have nothing else growing in it and we haven't added any nitrogen i think it just had too much nitrogen in the soil and it just it was great and it was leafy and i fed a ton of the leaves to all the animals and they loved it but it didn't actually produce any sweet potatoes so this year we're not touching it at all we're just gonna water it no fertilizer because it should have plenty of nutrients still in there. And then I will probably start adding in like some potassium and phosphorus. I can't remember. Yeah, NPK. I actually don't pay that close <laughs> attention to my fertilizer. I, I just get the organic all-purpose and sprinkle it once a week. Oh, you do it that often? No. <laughs> Once a month. Once a I'm month. Sorry. I was like, wow, that's a lot of fertilizer. I do it on the first of every month. Oh, smart. Not not once a week. Don't don't <laughs> fertilize once a week. Yeah, organic fertilizer is hard to overuse compared to like a chemical fertilizer, but still. We use the Dr. Earth right now because it's awesome for starting out your soil and getting everything really healthy with all the little micro nutrients and all the bacteria and everything that's in it to kind of help balance out and make healthy soil and we use the basic tomato fertilizer that's kind of just your average garden fertilizer variety from them for most things but we also use their acidic berry fertilizer we have their fruit tree one and their citrus tree one so we're just kind of like covering all of our potential needs for fertilizer there as well as doing like the foliar sprays and the fish water and stuff like that. We definitely just, I think, went 
too crazy on fertilizer to get everything started. And then we didn't really think about the fact that the sweet potatoes need less. And so now we're just like, okay, well, they've had two years to go nuts and use up all the nitrogen. So now I'm just going to use all the only nitrogen they'll officially get that's added is just going to be from the fish water that I might give them occasionally in the foliar spray so that the leaves still grow and are healthy, but I don't want them to grow nuts. Because I was having to trim like the entire bed, like just piles and piles of vines of leaves every single week. And I know that's not a good sign for having healthy sweet potatoes. Because the plant looks great, but you don't actually get anything out of the root itself, which is the part you want to eat. So this year we're going to try a little Mm. different. And if we can't get it figured out, then we'll probably try something else because we want things that will be successful for us and we don't want to take up a ton of time trying to put a lot of effort into things that aren't going to work. Yeah, I've tried just normal potatoes probably three years in a row and then got tired of it taking up one of my beds and I just gave up. I just, I water too much. I always think things are needing more water than they actually do. And Ah. I just, they just rot. That'll do it. I just need a bigger garden so I can water more. Yes. If you can water more things with a little less water, you'd probably be better off. But we had a pretty decent harvest this year of our potatoes. We did one whole like 13 foot bed with potatoes and we did three rows of potatoes in that one and we didn't have that many come up and I think that's just because I didn't plant them quite right you're supposed to kind of like plant them and water them in like hills and that way Mm -hmm. they like the because all the potatoes are produced kind of above the core tomato or potato that you plant so that I think I just didn't do quite right so we had probably five or six plants come up But we did pretty well from each of those plants. So if we're able to do that well per plant, but actually get all of them to come up in the east side of our H bed, which is roughly the same size. So it should be three rows, about 13 feet long. We should be able to get a ton of potatoes and we've just been keeping them in the fridge. And we found that that keeps them really well. And I just take any of the iffy ones, I'll either eat right away or we'll just compost. And then the rest I've been keeping in the fridge and that seems to work. And we're going to have a new fridge probably here in the next few months. And we'll probably have like a whole drawer just of potatoes in there so that we can use them. They really just don't eat enough potatoes for me to want to put in so much effort. Oh, really? We love potatoes. Really? Yeah. See, we eat a lot of, like, rice, which I I can't grow here. Right. I don't know. Maybe I could in the irrigation. Maybe I could make a little spot. But that just seems like a lot of work, too. Yeah, I was like, you won't grow enough. Even if you could grow a plant, you'd get, like, 40 kernels of rice. Yeah, it was almost a good idea. (laughs) No, no, rice wouldn't be good. Brian looked into it. I, I have thought about growing sesame. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah. Um, I did actually grow sesame seeds two years ago, but it it didn't make it through the summer from, again, the lack of watering, which is most of my problem for the last two years. That will not happen again. But I would like to grow sesame again because I think that would be really cool to grow sesame seeds. And the plant's not that big, so it's like you could kind of put it anywhere. Thank your garden's going to be awesome this year. I, I think about three years is what it takes for you to really understand where to put things. Yes. Yeah. It takes some time to figure out where to put things, how to manage them. And then ultimately I find I'm super into it, like super committed out there every single day, doing everything I need to do from like March, April, May, June. And in about July monsoon season, I start to kind of get that like garden fatigue of like I'm sick of doing Mm -hmm. this all the time and then I start to kind of let things go a little bit and then by the time you get into like the transition to winter gardening everything's just kind of chaotic and doing its own thing so hopefully if I manage things a little bit better this year and make it a little easier on myself then I won't have quite so much of that but it's definitely a real thing people get super sick of dealing with their garden every single day 
throughout the entire summer, especially if you're harvesting stuff every day and now you're having to do things with those harvests mm -hmm. a lot of days. And so it's just trying to find ways to make that easier and more manageable is important. I would definitely recommend to start small the way you did it works too, but yeah, I think I would have become overwhelmed. And I did. And I didn't do as good of a job as I could have had I started smaller. But we just, I don't know. That's just how we are, I guess. It's just like how our brains function. It's just everything's all or nothing. And if we're going to start a new hobby. There's no right or wrong way. Yeah. But I think for most people, it, it would be far more successful and far less overwhelmed if they started small. And even just rotating, like if you want to make sure that you have enough tomatoes to can, maybe just focus that season on tomatoes. To grow a few mm -hmm. things so you can have some fresh stuff, but not stuff that you have to deal with all the time. And just grow a bunch of tomatoes that year and do all the canning and not have to do anything else but just can tomatoes or eat tomatoes or freeze whatever you want to do with tomatoes. But just you can rotate through and that's something I plan to do. Like this year is definitely going to be tomato heavy and corn heavy. And I want those two to be really successful and they'll be like my absolute main focus and everything else. I'll just harvest what I need and kind of figure out the amounts that we want to use. And then in years after that, if I have a ton of cans of tomato stuff, I may not need to do 24 tomato plants. I may only do 10 or I may do five or whatever makes sense. But that way you can kind of adjust seasonally to figure out, okay, what's my priority this year? And you can focus on that. So if you only have three garden beds, you could do one whole bed that's nothing but tomatoes. And then one bed that has maybe a couple peppers and maybe a squash plant and some green beans or something. And like you can mix it up and just see what you want to do. But again, it kind of depends on your priority, right? Because we've transitioned this from being just a simple hobby to very much a lifestyle of how much can we get to produce in our backyard? How much can we save of it and preserve? How much of it can we eat ourselves and not have to buy from the grocery store? But if you're not trying to be that mm -hmm. intense, trying to use every single inch of space to be super conservative about what you're growing and making sure that you're getting everything you need is just not necessarily going to be the priority. It's going to be what brings you joy and what's manageable and what's pretty and aesthetically pleasing and whatever else is important to people because everyone has their own reasons for doing this. Like you definitely do it more of a hobby and it seems to bring you a lot of joy and peace and just kind of a way for you to get outside of the house and do something versus me I tend to I will just sit in front of the tv all day long if you let me so for me it's like a good way to get myself out to learn how to do something different to eat healthier and stuff so it's kind of just depends on where you're coming from yeah and it's a good it's a good thing to just know that you have to go out there once a day or not even have to like you want to go out once a day and see how well your plants are growing yeah i try to change all my have to's into i get to so there's a lot of people that mm -hmm. can't garden or that don't have the space or don't have the time so the fact that i get to go out there and have the time to do those things and to can and to be as self-sustaining as we possibly can be is really lucky so when I don't want mm -hmm. to do it and I feel like I have to do it, I try to remind myself that it's not a have to, it's a get to. And that helps yeah. because then I don't feel like such a brat. <laughs> well, then it's not like a chore either. Like you, yeah, you want to go out. Yeah, because like cleaning the house and doing things like that, even for me cooking dinner and cleaning up from dinner, like that's, those are all chores. Those are things I don't necessarily find passion in. But again, it's that same mindset of how can I find ways to make this feel less of a chore? And it's nice to be able to say, I get to clean my house because I have a house. Then we're not just like renting. Mm -hmm. We own the house and we're still paying on it, but we will own this house and we will make it exactly what we want it to be. And we're fortunate for that. And, and cooking, it's I get to be able to provide fresh things and to have enough time to cook and to clean up after and that that helps me some 
but there are definitely days when it feels really monotonous to just every single day is the same thing, the same kind of chores or the same responsibilities. And I know you can relate. You probably feel it even more than I do with kids. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know what to say to that. Yeah. They... It's fun, though, and gardening especially is actually more enjoyable with kids, I think. Yeah, I think that will be the case for me as well. I'm really excited when we get to that point of having a kid, of being able to share that with the kid. And I've seen, like, I have a friend that brought her kids over, and you can just see a difference in the kids and willingness. It just gets so excited. Yeah, willingness to try new things. Which makes you excited. Mm -hmm. So I think there is something to that, too, of like, it seems really overwhelming to bring your kid into that. And but if you can just let it happen and let it be joyful and fun, then I think it definitely can be more joyful and fun. And you can see it through the the lens of a kid, right? It's all of that newness and all that fun and experience that they're having. Oh, yeah, they notice. They notice so many things that I probably would never have seen without them. Yeah, that's so cool. So I think that pretty much covers everything we're going to do this spring. Sounds like we're going to have a lot to report back on later this summer, how things are going and what has been working and what hasn't been. So if you're listening, keep listening because we're probably going to keep you updated on all this stuff. This is the Backyard Bounty Podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Mari. Thanks for listening.